I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. My career in insurance was largely spent as a generalist, and that's why when I meet a specialist, I really enjoy it. There's something amazing about the level of nuance and detail that specialists can reach into that adds enormous value to the rest of us if we have time to get all the details out of them. Today's specialist is James Boyce, CEO of Global Specialties at Guy Carpenter, which means we're in for a treat because we're getting the best of both worlds. That's because Guy Carpenter can share as broad a global view of the market as is possible, but at the same time, we get an incredibly deep level of specialist knowledge and understanding. In today's podcast, we're focusing primarily on the retro markets. James and his colleagues have been in the thick of it, and in this episode we really clear the decks about where the market has landed after one of the most turbulent renewal periods in its history. I think that the picture that emerges is quite positive. The market has made rational changes that will set it in good stead for seasons to come. But although the product is fundamentally repriced right to the top of its useful range, the market is clearing and is a lot more predictable than it was at the end of last year. The underlying health of the market has also been buoyed by the news that, despite Hurricane Ian and the Ukraine conflict, the retro market managed to post a profit in 2022, and has moved decisively back up the value chain, well away from attritional exposures. James is excellent company. Well, he is a broker after all. And after this episode, you'll be right up to speed with the mood of underwriters and their capital backers in this, the highest but often least understood end of the capital stack that underpins the global insurance industry. Enjoy the podcast. James, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Mark. Your job title is your CEO of Global Specialties at Guy Carpenter. Why don't you just give us a grant of what that means and what you're in charge of? As you say, I lead the global specialty business for Guy Carpenter. It comprises really of four main segments. That's the non-marine business, the marine energy business, aviation and aerospace, and trade credit. But we also have some teams that focus on cyber, terror, engineering, and Lloyd's Capital as well. We support our clients from four main offices, which are New York, London, Singapore, and the Bermuda office. And we'll cross those offices. We've got about 250 people. So it's incredibly varied. Before we hit the record button, you were saying that you were a man and boy, a retro property broker, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So we're absolutely on home turf for you, James. So why don't you give us an idea of what the state of the retro market is at the moment? Well, we've been through one of the toughest renewals in decades. It probably stopped short as being as bad as some of the market commentators had predicted, but but there were an awful lot of hardening pressures out there, and those came from the macro level. But it also came from the historical performance of the underlying business as well. And at the same time, we've obviously seen a step change in the primary cap market, and that's meant that we saw some markets comparing the opportunity between US cat and retro. And we can't forget it was exacerbated by Hurricane Ian, which occurred extremely late in the year. And it happened just as the RLS funds were out raising money. So that created a large degree of uncertainty in terms of what that quantum of loss was going to be from Hurricane Ian and potentially how much collateral was going to be trapped. So we were saying that. And at the same time, we obviously had some very strong messages, as you'd be aware from the reinsurers out there. And that probably started at Monte Carlo and 
carried on through other conferences. And they were making those comments both publicly, but they were also making the comments more discreetly to the clients about the issues that they were struggling with. So those were including kind of the poor performance of CAT. It would have also been not meeting the required returns on capital and needing to reduce their volatility going forward. So a lot of stuff going on there for the reinsurers as they were trying to figure out the way forward. I guess that with all that together, it really kind of set the expectations as to how challenging a renewal it was going to be. I guess when we actually look at what happened in the end from the information that, that we have, we think supply for the retro market was probably down around 10%. But we also saw that demand was down as some of the buyers were pretty concerned about the state of the retro market. So they made some plans to reduce their gross portfolios and some decided to not carry on with the non-core purchases that were out there. And often those non-core purchases in their minds included aggregate covers, which were really maybe now looking for a reset in themselves and not going to do the same job at protecting the earnings of clients. So in general, I'd say that the buyers were able to clear the capacity that they had targeted to buy. So that was positive, but there was obviously notable restructuring in the programs and that was raising of attachment points. It was in some place narrowing of the geographic coverage and also peril coverage out there for the clients. So if I was going to come back to the supply side, probably worth commenting that obviously You'll be aware that some of the rated markets dropped out of writing retro. More often than not, that was because they were going to focus on writing primary cat instead. But the thing that was good was that the RLS capacity was more robust than we probably expected it to be at the early stages of the renewal process. And I think the real challenge for us was probably around aggregate covers. They were still struggling for the capacity in there. It really became two core markets looking at that. And the bottom end of programs where really capacity was very constrained in that particular area as the reinsurers were, were looking to move away from the frequency. And in terms of overall pricing, it's probably difficult to gauge because if, if everything's resetting at different attachment points, obviously retro had already been hardening before this mainstream reinsurance hardening that we had at 1-1. And we were referring, us journalists were referring to reinsurance as being the squeeze middle between the retro had been hardening and also insurance had been busy remediating itself and hardening for perhaps 12 to 16 quarters before this last one won. So what's the sense of what happens to that price of retro? It's probably quite difficult to gauge, but did it reset at least in attachment point terms to be really much higher up than it would have been before? Look, overall, there's probably been a lot of commentary out there in the market in terms of how much prices move for retro. There was a sizable uplift in the prices. But as you say, it was the attachment which was a real focus for people. We think that really people were trying to move up and away and Hurricane Ian was used as a bit of a yardstick for where lots of people wanted to attach. I suppose as a retro writer, you want to be in excess of something like a Hurricane Inn. You don't want to be picking that up. You want to be there for something that is substantially bigger and on a much theoretically longer return period, one presumes. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly where a lot of people were looking. So there's a mixture of markets with different appetites, as you'd appreciate. But generally, that was the yardstick by which people ran of looking at Ian and what that was going to be and trying to move above it. And again, with those aggregate covers, they seem to have been in the last chance saloon. They certainly don't seem to be the preferred vehicle by which people would like to write retro these days. Are they not available or is it simply because the terms are so unattractive that they're not really buyable or not economically valuable? Uh, look, I think there was certainly a reset of that product. There was a narrowing of the markets which were offering it. It's really probably just 
two main core markets offering aggregate cover to the retro clients. But we still see absolute value in that product that's out there. And it works very well for a, a lot of our clients, but it was reformed and it was restructured. And there was probably less first event exposure within the aggregate covers that were placed at 1-1 than, than had been there previously. So it's really got to be a genuine aggregation of quite a lot of events in one year. Generally, I think that we would have seen in the past that there were quite a lot of aggregate covers that would have been fully exposed to first event losses. And now a lot of them have moved either limiting the first event or moved to more of a sideways basis than they were before. And also just avoiding some of the very small attritional losses that you would have seen out there in the market. So it sounds like that's just retro going back to what it should be or its roots, that it shouldn't really be something that's attritional sort of cover. It's not what you would associate with retro. So it's for there for the, oh my goodness, kind of cover, not, oh, I had a couple of losses. It sounds like you are a aggregate market with your <laughs> statement there, Mark. I, I think they would probably say exactly those words to you. It wasn't what they were there for. Yeah, we're here for one really, really bad one or two really, really bad ones. And we're also here for an aggregation of a very unexpectedly large number of medium-sized ones or something. That seems to be understandable. It's something both are outcomes that shouldn't happen very often. One presumes it should be one in 100 years or one in 200 years. You wouldn't expect these things to be happening every year, would you? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point, isn't it? You shouldn't be buying something and people aren't going to be prepared to offer something that's responding every single year. There's no investor that's going to find that appealing. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow. But this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. So retro is a product that has got substantially more expensive and also substantially more remote, going back to perhaps where it probably should be. What is the prospect now, given we've had so much hardening over the last few seasons, what's the prospect now as we're going into mid-year, more renewals coming up? When is the main calendar for retro? Is it mostly 1-1? But what are the prospects for mid-year? Uh, do you think there's going to be more rate sought by retro writers? So, first of all, to answer your question about when it comes up, the main renewal periods, obviously 1-1 one, one is the yeah. largest renewal period, but 1-4 and also 1-6-1-7 are fairly meaningful still in that marketplace. In terms of what we expect for the retro renewals, I think we think it's going to be pretty similar to 1-1 one, one in terms of both pricing, attachment and coverage. So that's really the theme of our messaging to our clients will be the same. I guess if we go back and look at pre-11, kind of much of November and December was dominated by price and coverage discovery, but the market found its level and I think to some degree maybe precedence was set. So when we look at what's out there going forward, my personal view on this is that retro is really pretty much at the peak of what's affordable at the moment. And whilst there is some benefit that the underlying treaty pricing has certainly helped with clients' budgets, there's not too much further that that product can probably go in terms of pricing and give value to clients. Because yeah, it, it gets to the point where a reinsurer will say, well, I'm just not going to buy this anymore. I'm just going to have to reduce my gross exposure myself and retain more net, I presume. I think that's the case. And, and we've already seen that to some degree of some of our clients reducing 
their gross position in order to insulate themselves a little bit from what was viewed as a potential reduction in the retro market capacity. But looking forward, it sounds like it's a more stable picture. And also, at least in capacity terms, you know what is actually going to be available. I think so. I think there's definitely more clarity now on the supply side. And we should also remember that the vast majority of the markets actually out there have capacity available for the remainder of the year as well. And also there's potentially some new capacity coming in. So yeah, really when it comes to advising our clients, I think we'll be doing the same thing that we said at 1-1, which is we're not going to be pushing the clients to grab capacity at terms or structures that aren't suitable or appropriate. And I think that that's something that's really important where we feel we stood out in the market at 1-1. And we'll continue to do that as we go forward. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about the benefit of scale that we have a great insight into the market overall. And that gives us the ability to monitor quotes in real time and advise our clients where the capacity is and and maybe what the the correct clearing prices or where clearing prices are. But you've also got more time than you had at one one where it was such a foggy picture until almost the last minute. You know, it was difficult to work out where the capacity was going to come from and what it was going to be offered to in the form of pure reinsurance or retro. So now it's better from a broking perspective, from a client perspective, that you can plan more. You can see more what the market's going to do and what capacity is available and roughly at what price. So I certainly agree there's more clarity out there for the clients. Everyone knows where the market is. And we have to remember the clients have a better understanding of the original business and the rates on the original business. So that's far easier for them to plan knowing that pricing. They didn't know that as maybe they were going into the 1-1 renewals. They were hopeful that they would see a step change on the primary cat side. But that actually did translate into a reality. And that dynamic you referred to where we had a reduction supply in traditional retro, partly because of those that previously did write retro had decided not to sell retro anymore and had just decided to deploy that capital into the pure reinsurance market rather than retro. Is that done now, do you think? Is that stability coming back that you now know You're not going to have another player who writes a bit of retro saying, I won't do this anymore. I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to concentrate on pure reinsurance. Yeah, I think there's more certainty there. I think those people have made their decisions. And I think actually, interestingly, I know I've spoken to some rated companies who increased their retro writings more than they were expected because they saw the attractiveness of the price. So it's not just a one-way street in terms of retro capacity going into the reinsurance market. There was some coming back in the other direction. So we feel fairly confident that the people who are in the retro market at the moment will remain in the retro market going forward. And they may even be writing more, some of them, so what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I think there's more optimism for more capacity. Out I there. suppose in historical terms, we're in very rate adequate territory, aren't we, for retro writers? If they, if they look at their history books, has it ever been this good? It's always difficult to compare, isn't it? So, I mean, as you say, we we kind of look at the peaks post-92, post-2001, post-2005. But, I mean, the opportunity is really very, very strong at the moment for people. And we haven't seen this big influx of new capacity coming into the marketplace. We're talking about new capacity. Obviously, it requires capital. It requires investors to garner interest in deploying their capital into the retro market. Obviously, we had a period of poor results and perhaps poor terms and conditions available. And then we've had a period of fairly dramatic remediation over two or three seasons. What's your sense of the mood of investors now? We've come through a full year results cycle that's been pretty good, and pretty good even in a year that's had a Hurricane Ian in it. What's your sense of investor mood? 
this time last year, a year before, you'd have said they're probably on strike and they're really not interested. They're sort of exasperated. They've heard too many good stories from retro writers before. Yeah, and yet losses have kept coming in. Now we've had a genuine reset. Are they more likely to be receptive? Particularly also they've seen some very good numbers. First of all, pick up on your point that you said around some good results out there in the insurance and in, in the reinsurance space. I know from a London Mark and a Lloyd's perspective, we've seen some fantastic underwriting results announced so far this year. However, obviously, we know that the investment returns were very challenged and you've commented on your podcast around that. Look, I'd say for the broad base of our clients and markets, it's fantastic to see them returning to profitability. And I think it does demonstrate the improvement in the underlying operating conditions for the market as a whole. I think if we go back to looking at the reinsurers, and if you look at the global reinsurer returns in the aggregate measured by ROE, they've been really low. I mean, they're in the kind of low single digit percentage wise. So there's some time to go before that becomes a driver of unlocking investor appetite going forward. But look, as a whole, I think the reinsurance sector is far more positive given that step change that we discussed in rating in both retro and reinsurance property markets, but also across the specialty market. Come back to your point in kind of looking at retro specifically. I think the one thing I would say, we touched on the results over time not being great over the last few years of retro, but actually we should remember that in 2022, the retro market as a whole actually made money. And that's not commented on too much out there. And that was with a $50 billion market loss occurring. So I think it was a clear vindication for us that the retro product wasn't broken and didn't necessarily require a reset. And so that reset was really probably more driven by one, obviously the investors pushing it, but actually more about what was happening in the primary reinsurance market and it floating up in line with some of the increases that were seen there. So when we actually look at going forward and you were saying about, is there some positive noise in terms of additional money coming in? I've been traveling in the last week and we're certainly hearing from markets out there of plenty of inbound investor calls coming. But those investors are really trying to figure out what and exactly where the opportunity is. And actually also where it actually sits relatively to the previous periods. You you asked me about the hard markets. They're really trying to figure that one out. But look, I think it's positive. There's definitely money coming in. But I don't think it's going to be a wall of money coming into the marketplace. I had someone say to me the other day, yes, yeah, certainly not a stampede. It seems to be very discerning as well. Again, it, you know, we've seen players that have extremely strong track records who have eminently backable people. You know, I would trust my money with them, I think, if I had any spare money, that I was a high enough net worth person to be able to invest directly into collateralized retro. I, I would offer them a few of my hard-earned pennies. But certainly no wall of money, no big flood of money. Is that right to say? It's a yeah. discerning thing. And it's also almost this sort of one swallow doesn't make a summary. Okay, you made a profit this year, but I want to see consistent profit. I want to see two or three years before I really get my checkbook out. Yeah. And look, I think you've got to break it down a bit of where the investors come from and what the appetite of each of those investors are. So. If you looked at where the most interest in retro is at the moment, it's really coming from hedge funds, maybe some of the asset managers, family offices, and as you touched on, probably the higher net worth or probably more really the ultra high net worth individuals. So that's where they're looking at retro saying this is an opportunity in the marketplace. So the sentiment is definitely positive. I think it's just difficult to see at the moment, is that money that comes into the market going to come in mid-year? Or is it actually going to come in for 2024? And therefore, the fact that they've seen a profitable year rather than uh, just the expectation of one. Yes. And 
In this period also, we've had some quite seasoned, well-known players wanting to set up, certainly we see the press stories about them, but being sort of almost failure to launch potential star retro underwriters, unable to set up new vehicles. Do you think that might change? That story might change? Now we've obviously we've had a better momentum, better good news. I think the market conditions would suggest the time is right for a new retro startup. And I would certainly welcome additional capacity coming into the market. But look, I think sadly, investors remain very cautious out there. So, and I think that certainly, as you say, kind of some of the appetite really seems to be going to the existing franchises rather than a new startup. And I think that's probably down to a few reasons. I think that they're probably the existing franchises have got the infrastructure, they've got the oversight, they've got the governance out there. And there's a view from some that they can get a more immediate access to the risk. And therefore, from that, that they would expect that the returns could come quicker. When we talk about potential investor appetite out there, I think we also see that some people are wanting a more diverse risk play as well, maybe to some degree. And therefore, they're going to look to the managers that can access diversity of risk and and also probably have the ability to sell, cross-sell across the different classes. An interesting thing, of course, these days, investors have so many different options. You know, 30 years ago, the only option would have been to set up a traditional reinsurance company and the innovation would have been that it would have been on Bermuda. But that would have been about the only thing really innovative about it. There was no new structures. And But over the intervening period, we've created so many more different structures that all have different characteristics, sidecars, ILS, all sorts of things, collateralized sidecars, you know, amazing variety of means by which an investor can access reinsurance risk and retro risk. What are the most favoured options? If you're saying that they want to back existing players, I suppose, then are you implying that a sort of sidecar, that kind of thing is more likely to be the means by which that capital will access the risk? Look, I think following the cap frequency that we've seen, generally, the investor appetite has been to move up. We discussed that slightly earlier around the specific retro product, but they kind of want to move more towards the remote peak zone risk obviously with lower probabilities of having a loss, but actually very importantly, a lower probability of trapping collateral. That's obviously extremely important. I think where you saw some of the investors out there, and particularly if you saw some of the institutional investors, so the pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, they seem to have a preference at the moment around cap bonds. So that seems to be an area of huge interest. And maybe you would have seen some of those people in the past play across the full risk spectrum. They're now kind of looking to push it out. And I think that the reason for that is it's kind of performed in accordance with the investor's objectives more than anything else. So the need for transparency, for a stable performance, and also the benefit of liquidity of that product. So that's been an area of the market that's been very important. And that third-party validation you get from all the structures, you know, you get the model and you get other people. It's not just you taking an underwriter's word for it. You've got somebody else validating what they're saying and saying this is the expected loss on this layer, on this tranche or whatever. And obviously pricing is pretty good in that, that world as well. Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty good. But it's also the fact if you actually look at maybe something like Hurricane Ian, it's done what people expected it to do. So yes, there's going to be a small number of cap bonds which are anticipated to pay claims to their sponsors, but the majority of bonds won't simply due to the level of attachment. So it is some of what you're saying around the kind of the clarity because of the coverage that's provided under them, but also the level of the attachment. And that makes it appealing and gives a large degree of comfort to the investors in those cap bonds. So cap bonds, um, okay, so cap bonds- move over to the ILS department. 
I think it's interesting. We're kind of getting noise of, I mean, obviously some of the RLS funds raising more money in that space, but also maybe some RLS funds going into that space that didn't have it previously. And I think that's because they want to be able to give options to investors across the whole risk range that was out there. So it's a good tool in order to do that. But at the same time as that, I mean, you mentioned some different products, probably worth touching on RWs as well, because if you think about that as a product, it has a similar value really for the clients and for the investors out there in terms of where it's offering some kind of peak. Presumably because you can settle it reasonably quickly. I mean, okay, it doesn't trap capital forever, does it? No. So that I think there are those facets out there, but it was more that it's actually more remote uh, generally in terms of where that's being provided. And it's it's a pretty meaningful market. I mean, we look at that market now, it's probably about $6 billion of capacity in that marketplace. And then these are sort of excess of 50 billion type yeah. contracts. Yeah, typically. And they've been getting more remote and in terms of what's out there as well. And we've seen things going up to maybe $150 billion wow. in terms of attachment in the marketplace. Goodness. That would take quite a while to settle though, wouldn't it? Because it would just take a while just to work out that we really have hit 150. That's quite a lot of time, one presumes. But I suppose we hope that that, that event's never going to happen. What's really happened to the collateralized retro world? Obviously, let's say people painted it perhaps as the villain of the piece in the, the softer times that have preceded this remediation phase we're in now. What's the prognosis for it? Is it sort of flat, stagnant? What's the attitude to people who previously have been big players in that? Well, look, I think, as I indicated earlier, I believe it's really positive. Maybe it's not the case for every fund out there. I think when we looked at the money that was raised for the 1123 renewal, there were certainly winners and losers in the market out there. But I think that you absolutely have to consider collateralized retro as a long-term component of the market. It's proved itself far more durable than some market commentators predicted. And whilst the percentage of UNL retro has diminished over the last few years, it's still probably just about 40% of the space. And I think that we shouldn't take that reduction in capacity in any ways to signal it's the demise of the product. That's just not the case. It's absolutely clear that we both have clients and we have investors who see value in the collateralized retro product. And whilst we're not going to have every single client who wants to have collateralized reinsurance, there's a few that don't want the hassle of dealing with trust accounts. And that's really understandable for some of the smaller deals. I think if you look now for the majority of our clients, they would have ILS funds, which would make up some of their key long-term trading partners. So it really is an extremely important component of the space. And I think overall, when you look at it, there's going to be some improved expected returns out there on the portfolios. And I think if those improved expected returns translate into improved actual returns, I think you'll see that the collateralized retro market will grow its share of the retro market again in the future. So it's absolutely not going to win. Of course, it benefits from all the uplift in terms and conditions and pricing that everyone else has got as well. So the message is it's still here. Maybe it's not where it was, you know, four or five years ago but it sounds like it may have sort of bottomed out. I think that's right. It's not as big as it was, but actually probably the overall UNL retro market has shrunk a little bit as well over the years. But look, it's a massively important part of the market and it is still healthy. And I'm sure we'll, we'll see that growth again in the future soon. I know this is not your chosen specialist area, but you did mention cyber. And it's interesting, obviously, we're always talking about property. 
I suppose, you know, property is something very finite. And we talk about the future, we talk about intangibles, and we talk about cyber, and we talk about other things. And, we, you know, we talk about PNC, there was going to be in the C end of, you know, it'll be C and P. I remember somebody at a, at a conference four or five years ago said, well, only about four or five years time, it's going to be C and P. We, we can't call it PNC anymore. There is much less property as a percentage of actual value. Everything's intellectual property these days. But the world of retro is becoming broader. It's becoming a PNC market. We've seen something in cyber. And there's always been nibbles around with casualty as well, but it's assumed that things are boding well, that it's going to be a more broad and diversified world. You know, there are catastrophe markets, not just in property that seem to now be developing, just in broad terms. I know it's not necessarily the day job. Yeah, sure, Luke. There's been some recent one-off transactions which have shown the ability of the non-traditional capacity providers to invest in cyber risk. But I would say that cyber ILS is really still in its infancy. You'd have to say that the capacity deployed so far is tentative and probably experimental in nature. And you have to remember that most ILS funds still don't have cyber as a mandate. And so it means there's still going to be some challenges for the market to achieve scale in the near term. But look, there's some recent examples of investors deploying fresh capital into reinsurance and retro cyber through both collateralized quota shares and private cap bonds. Cyber Retro has been around for a while. It's probably worth saying that I think there is an overlap of the markets between both the writers of reinsurance and the writers of Retro Cyber. And and Retro has been seen as maybe an attractive turnkey solution for investors, giving them access to those kind of diversified portfolios. But I think when you look at it, I think the ILS side and the appeal of the investors is more around the short tail features of cyber. So cyber is maybe a hybrid class that presents both long tail casualty like features as well as catastrophe like exposures. And it's really that short tail aspect of CyberCat that the investors are attracted to. And and that's because of the obvious things of being able to redeploy the capital reasonably quickly after the expiry of a cover. And that's really important. And it has that kind of similar development tail to maybe property cat. Yes, because one presumes a large cloud outage type thing. This is their Florida, isn't it? This is their California earthquake or Florida wind type scenario. One would hope that these would be quite short and sharp. One presumes that they would be able to get the whole thing up and running again within a certain period of time, in a few days, one would hope, and, and therefore you'd start assessing that loss really pretty quickly. Is that what you're referring to in, in a short tail type event? It's almost like being hit with a hurricane. Yeah, you know whether you're going to have a loss or not. <laughs> it's really interesting. But anyway, but we should schedule in a, another meeting for about 20 years' time because this is sort of the equivalent of residential re in 1993 or 1992, whenever the first one was. So we're only just starting, aren't we, on this? We're nowhere near getting to mature market. Yeah, yeah, look, I would agree. And we'd be very happy to talk to you and pull in some cyber experts to have a chat with you about it. But look, we're obviously spending quite a lot of time at the moment promoting knowledge sharing in cyber with the goal of bringing in new products and capacity to our clients. And I'd say the investors are increasingly receptive to that. You're definitely right. That it's definitely a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we'll move on. Well, obviously... We introduced your role as CEO of Global Specialties, and that included a very broad swathe of classes, which have been affected. We've had, for example, a very aggregating loss event of the Ukraine war, for example. How's that played out into the market? What's the impact been? We've had anecdotal people talking about unbundling of treaties and stuff, but has it played it at the higher level? I'd say 2022 and the events of the Russia-Ukraine conflict impacted large parts of our specialty business in an unprecedented way. 
particularly for the marine, aviation and, and war classes of business. So the 1-1 specialty renewals were very challenging. And I'm pleased that our platform was able to demonstrate the value from the breadth of expertise that we have in global specialties. And we were there to support our clients and navigate a great deal of uncertainty in the market and secure the best available coverage that was out there. So to your point, in terms of the changes, we saw a limiting in the coverage, a broadening of exclusions out there. And it was also tough to find alignment between some of the lead markets, particularly around the marine composite products. Those composites were a mixed picture. Nearly all placements required a degree of restructuring. Loss-impacted programs would have witnessed a more severe requirement of unbundling for certain perils. But I think one thing that happened, there's now probably a far greater degree of transparency of pricing for each segment, and that's whether they were maintained within the composite product or not. So, look, we think that we're ideally placed to support our clients across specialty areas. I think having the experts in teams in war on land and terror an aviation hull war meant that when those composites did become squeezed, that we were able to find solutions for our clients, whether it was combined or on standalone pillars out there. It was a shakeout. And presumably, if anyone had been dabbling in those classes before 1-1, they wouldn't be dabbling in them anymore. This is a moment in which you really had to double up on your commitment to continuing to be in those classes, one presumes. I would say the capacity remains strong in those classes. It was strong. It was just a matter of finding the right product with the right coverage and price. So more of a reset, not a wholesale sort of revolution or culling, perhaps. Exactly. It was a reset. James, we, I think we've run through everything I was planning on talking about. If you've got anything to, sort of, to leave us with, as we look towards these renewals, it sounds like reasonably stable picture, but from a very high base. But it's more of a known quantity now. Is that probably the right way of describing where we are? Yeah, I think you've summed it up perfectly. We're excited for what the rest of the year has out there and the opportunities that'll be around. And we're there to support our clients in order for them to make the most of the market opportunity, which looks really strong at the moment. Primarily, we're focused on our clients and it looks like hopefully they'll be able to make some healthy profits this year. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, James, and come back on the show soon. Thanks a lot, Mark. Really nice to be with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.